Hi there. I'm so glad that you are here. Thanks for tuning in. Today is going to be very, very fun. It's the beginning of John chapter 8. And John chapter 8 is, is uh, this very little special place in the Gospel of John that causes a whole bunch of fun things to happen. So I'm excited to begin to unpack it today. Uh, following the sermon, there's going to be a conversation. Um, just talking about the sermon um, to be able to 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 unpack and explore and converse. Uh, so, so please hang around and be a part of the conversation after. Uh, so that being said, it's time for us to begin. Hey everybody, I'm really excited that I get to spend some time with you today. Thanks for being here. Uh, so something that I know all of us have in common is that all of us have made mistakes that we wish that we could take back. All of us have moments that we wish we could do over again and do differently. All of us have things that we regret doing and saying. And some of these things we have a hard time forgiving ourselves for. Uh, something I've learned about myself is that in sad situations, I have kind of an inappropriate sense of humor. Um, when things get really heavy, I make jokes. Uh, this is a coping mechanism. I would rather shock myself into laughing than I would to feel these sad, heavy emotions. But when these thoughts pop into my head, I need to be really careful about who I share these things with because not everyone is wired the same way. Not everyone appreciates these things. Uh, a couple months ago, one of our youth leaders, he got a pet bird and it was this brilliant shade of blue and he loved this bird and he named this bird the best name for a bird I've ever heard of before. He named this bird Subaru. And so he was really excited about this bird. A couple weeks later, I texted him and said, hey man, I was thinking about you. How are things going? How you doing? And he said, you know, I'm actually pretty sad. My uh, bird Subaru just died. Uh, and I had to resist the urge in that moment uh, to respond by saying, you know, I've had a few friends with Subarus and they've talked about how unreliable that they are and some of theirs have died and you're not alone. Um, but I, I used him self-control and I didn't share that with him, at least not right away. Later on, he thought it was funny. But one of the reasons why I may have had the self-control to do that is because years ago when my mom was dying from cancer and she was nearing the end, I was on the phone with my sister and we were having this conversation, just kind of processing our emotions and how we were feeling and just this really tragic situation. And in that conversation, this coping mechanism came out and I said something I'm too embarrassed to even repeat here. And it was so inappropriate and insensitive. And I know when we're grieving, we get like special grace and like we all grieve in different ways, but this really hurt my sister. And it really hurt our relationship. After the funeral, uh, the two of us, we didn't talk for a while. Things are a lot better now. Like she really graciously forgave me and that has meant a lot, but, at the time, I just felt like garbage. Like I felt like a terrible son and a terrible brother and a heartless human being. And to this day, I regret that. I really, really wish that I could take that back and do that over again. 
it's frustrating how easily we can remember our worst moments. And it's also frustrating how vividly we can remember our worst moments compared to our better ones. And because we're able to remember them so clearly, it enables us to do something. It, it allows us to repeat these mistakes, these, these most embarrassing moments over and over and over in our head like this reoccurring nightmare that, that won't go away. Or maybe we criticize ourselves for it. We say these critical accusatory things like, how could you? What have you become? Who does something like this? How could you let something like this happen? You are a terrible person. Maybe it's not just like one moment that you beat yourself up for. Maybe it's a series of moments. Maybe it's a habit or an addiction or a flaw of some kind, or, or maybe it's a failure, not like a moral or ethical failure, but like Maybe you just weren't able to do something that you were supposed to do and you let other people down and you feel like you failed. And it is really hard to forgive ourselves sometimes. Some of us, we carry around this weight of guilt and shame and regret and embarrassment and disappointment and the sense of failure. And, and we carry it around like this weight that we feel like we're always going to carry for the rest of our life because we deserve to carry it because there's nothing we can do to take that back. Well, today we've come to the point in John where we see a story. And this is a story about Jesus and a woman who is caught in her worst moment and a crowd of people. And this story, it begs the question, what if we didn't have to carry that weight anymore? What if we could be free? The story is found in John chapter 8, and it's verse 2 through 11, and it goes like this. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So in the story, we find Jesus. Uh, for the past few days, early in the morning, he's been walking into Jerusalem and into the temple courts, this big open-air courtyard, and sitting down and teaching to whoever wanted to come and sit and listen. And I am incredibly jealous of these people who got to experience that. I, I wish I could have been there. But in the middle of one of these, this group of religious leaders interrupts Jesus and they break through the crowd and they're dragging behind them this woman who was just caught in one of the worst moments of her life. 
and they throw this woman in front of Jesus and they publicly shame her for what she has done and they talk about killing her. And they're doing this to trap Jesus. You see, if Jesus was to say that they should let this woman go, he'd basically be saying that the law of Moses is incorrect or it doesn't matter and and that would get him into a ton of trouble. But if Jesus said that they should follow the law and they should stone this woman, that would totally go against everything he had been teaching up to this point about grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and God's heart towards his people. And he'd be exposed as, as basically a fraud. So they bring this woman and they're using her as bait to, to trap him. But Jesus, he responds to all of this by saying nothing. He just bends down and he starts writing something on the ground with his finger. Now, there's a lot of theories out there about what Jesus could have been writing and and nobody knows for sure, but I think the reason why he did this was to ignore these people because of how disgusted he probably was. I mean, think about it. Like, not only was it rude for them to interrupt like what he was doing, but on top of that, these religious leaders, they capture this woman caught in one of the worst mistakes she's ever made and immediately bring her in front of a group of people to publicly shame her and then threaten to kill her. And the worst part is, is it seems like that they don't even care about what happens to this woman. They're just using her as kind of like a pawn in their game in order to trap Jesus. And so Jesus, seeing everything, all the undertones of what's going on and the heart behind all the people who are there, he doesn't even dignify this with a response. He just bends down and starts writing. But they keep pressing him on this. And so eventually Jesus stands up and he says, whoever of you has never sinned before can throw the first stone at this woman. In in saying this, he's pointing out the hypocrisy and just the total lack of compassion of what's going on here. Like these group of imperfect people have captured this imperfect person making a mistake, just like they have made mistakes, and they put her in front of other people to condemn her and threaten to kill her when they are just as imperfect as she is. And Jesus is not having it. It seems like Jesus does not stand for people condemning other people because of how compassionless and hypocritical it is. All of us have made mistakes. For one of us to condemn another person for making a worse mistake than we have would be like if there was a group of people in a boat and the boat was sinking at an angle. And the group of people who are ankle deep in water began to judge and criticize the people who are waist deep in water. Now, not only would that be ridiculous, but these people, they're totally ignoring the fact that they are in just as much need of rescue as these people are. And they are doing absolutely nothing to solve the situation that they're in. When we condemn another person who has made mistakes just like we have, it is ridiculous and it is totally ignoring the fact that we are in just as much need of help as they are. And we're doing nothing to fix the situation. So Jesus, he's standing up and he's saying that the only person qualified to condemn someone who has made a mistake is the person who has never made a mistake before. And the only person in the story that matches that description is Jesus. So all these people, they leave 
and it's just Jesus and this woman. But here's the curious thing. Even though Jesus has never made a mistake, he doesn't even condemn this woman. Look again at verse 10 and 11. It says this, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Condemnation is kind of a heavy word. If you were to work it regularly into just like normal conversation, it's not going to make you a whole lot of friends. But here's kind of a good definition for a word we don't use a whole lot. Condemnation is when someone tells another person that their mistakes are now an inescapable part of who they are. Condemnation tells us that our mistakes are an inescapable piece of who we are. It is your identity. It defines you. You are condemned because it is a part of you now that cannot be separated from you. This is it. In the Bible, when someone was condemned, it often came with some sort of punishment. But honestly, I think one of the worst consequences of condemnation is from that point forward, people would view you, they would identify you by the mistake that you had made. You are now a liar. You are a thief. You are a murderer. You are an adulterer. You are a heretic. So we've already talked about how Jesus said when we condemn other people, like we see from here, when we condemn other people, it is hypocritical and is compassionless. But Jesus doesn't even condemn. And one of the reasons why he doesn't is just because it is entirely unhelpful. A couple weeks ago, some friends of ours invited me and my family to go water skiing. And the last time that I went water skiing, it didn't go so well. I was this gangly preteen and very uncoordinated. And I've come a long way since then. So I had high hopes that this was going to turn out differently. Um, so I gave it a try. And I learned very quickly that I have the coordination of a gangly preteen, uh, at least when it comes to water skiing. I'm not very good at it. I tried six times and all six times I failed. I fell in the water and it was not, uh, it wasn't nothing to brag about. But here's what happened. Every time I tried, so I'd hold on to the rope and the boat would get going and I'd flop into the water and the boat would come around to drag the line in front of me so I could grab a hold of it again. But every time this happened, when the boat went by, my five-year-old son, he would lean over the edge and say things like, you're not very good at this, Papa. And I'd grab hold of the line and the boat would take off and I'd fall in the water and the boat would come around and he'd lean over the edge and, and say, you fell in the water again, Papa. You need to stop doing that. And I would grab a hold of the line and the boat would get going and I'd fall in the water. And, uh, and the boat would come by again and he'd lean over the edge and this was my favorite one. I'm floating there in this life jacket and these skis in the water and I can't do anything. And he said, you need to stop dilly-dallying. So... I was really disappointing my son and my water skiing abilities. And this was really funny, honestly. Like the whole boat was laughing at me because of my son. And, and I wasn't upset at all. But afterwards, we did have a conversation. And because what he was doing, it was totally unhelpful. Like it was doing nothing for me and my water skiing abilities. So we talked to him afterwards and, and we said, look, when someone is trying something for the very first time, they're not going to do it perfectly. They're going to make mistakes. 
and they don't need someone criticizing them for the mistakes that they're making. They need someone to encourage them and, and lift them up. Well, think about this. Every single one of us is trying life for the very first time. None of us have done this before. For all of us, this is our first go of it. We're not going to do it perfectly because we've never done this before. This is our first time. And the last thing that we need is for people to be criticizing us and condemning us for making mistakes. We need people to encourage us because for people to condemn us, it's just entirely unhelpful. So Jesus doesn't condemn because it doesn't help, but also because it tells people that they are just beyond any kind of help. Remember, condemnation says that what you've done is an inescapable part of who you are. You are beyond help. This is your identity now. Lately, I've been listening to this podcast where uh, these people, they have been going inside uh, San Quentin State Prison and interviewing inmates and asking them what it's like to be in prison. And it's been fascinating. I've been learning so much. And I've learned that San, San Quentin State Prison is kind of unique. They have this huge value in rehabilitation. And so they have all these classes and opportunities that the, the people incarcerated there can be a part of. And I've been surprised by the amount of hope and purpose and laughter and community that is found there. I would not have expected that. But recently I listened to an episode that felt very different. There is a building in San Quentin prison that houses a group of inmates. And the people who live in this building are not allowed to interact with the rest of the prison population because these people in this building, they're on death row. And they interviewed uh, one of the people there who's been on death row for about 30 years now. And he made a really clear distinction. He said, I was not sentenced to rehabilitation. I was sentenced to death. This death sentence communicates to these prisoners on death row that this is who they are. They are defined by what they have done. It is so bad that there is no going back. There is no hope of redemption. The only thing left for them to do is to wait and accept it and die. Condemnation has a similar effect. It tells someone that there's just no hope of escaping what they've done. This is who they are now, and they can't change that. Not ever. And it causes us to believe that we are beyond help. Here's kind of how I distinguish the difference between general guilt and condemnation. When we make a mistake, it's kind of like jumping into a dumpster behind a restaurant on a hot summer day after the lunch rush. And it's been a week since the garbage truck has even come. Like, this is a ripe dumpster. And when we make a mistake, it's like we jump into this dumpster and we roll around in it. And we are covered in garbage. We have it on us and, and we, we're stepping in juices. So we, we look like it and we smell like it and it looks gross and it feels gross. So there are consequences to mistakes. You jump in the dumpster, you're going to smell like garbage. It's gross. Nobody likes it. Guilt is simply acknowledging that the reason why we're in the dumpster is because we chose to jump in there. It's just admitting, yep, I'm in the dumpster because I hopped into it. And that's honestly a healthy level of awareness for us to have. 
But condemnation tells us the reason why you are in the dumpster is because you are garbage. And that's where garbage belongs. You look like it and you smell like it because that's what you are. So don't even try to get out of the dumpster. The only place people want garbage is in the dumpster. So you might as well just stay there and accept it. This is who you are. But Jesus did not come here to make sure that we knew that we were garbage. Jesus came to hop into the dumpster himself and give us a boost out of there and then wash us off so that we could see who we are, so he could show us who he made us to be. To condemn another person is compassionless and hypocritical, but Jesus doesn't even do it because it doesn't help and it tells someone that they're beyond help. He doesn't condemn because Jesus did not come here to condemn. He came here to rescue. A lot of us are familiar with John 3.16. If you're not, I'll read it for you. It goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But the very next verse, verse 17, says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Guys, when Jesus came here and took on our sin and then died with it and then came back from death, conquering death, he didn't just let us out of death row. He released us from the entire prison. He has set us free which is why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Condemnation says that we can't escape our mistakes, but this says that Jesus has separated us from them. So now we can see who we really are. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The message of condemnation is the opposite of the message of Jesus. Our mistakes are not an inescapable piece of who we are. Jesus has separated us from them. We are a new creation. He has brought us out of darkness into light. He's brought us out of darkness into light. So you can see in this story, when this group of religious leaders that is supposed to be compassionately caring for their people, drags this woman caught in her worst moment in front of a group of people to publicly shame and condemn her and then talk about killing her as nonchalantly as if they were talking about taking out the garbage. You can see why Jesus didn't even dignify this with a response because that is not what Jesus came to do. He did not come to condemn. And so he stands off and chases up, stands up and chases off her accusers. And then he looks at her and he says, I don't condemn you either. 
And because Jesus came to rescue, he tells her to do two things that sound so simple, but they are so significant because these things are impossible for us to do if we are condemned. He tells her, go and sin no more. These are things that we can only do if we are not condemned. Jesus tells her, go, be free. Be free from condemnation. Be free from the dumpster. Be free from death row. Be free from this court of voices that is trying to define who you are by the mistakes that you have made. Go, be free. You can let go. And because we are free, he tells her, sin no more. Which I'll admit, sounds a bit too simple. It's not often as easy as just stopping. Usually it's more complicated than that. But the point here is that it's possible. If we are condemned, if this is an inescapable piece of who we are, why even try to stop? Why even try to get away from it? Again, if we are garbage, why even try to get out of the dumpster? That's where we belong. It's who we are. But if we are not condemned, if we are not defined by our mistakes, if we are not garbage, it's as simple as recognizing that and getting out of the dumpster so we can get washed off again. Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to rescue. He came to set us free so that we could go, so that we could sin no more. I read this true story about a woman not long ago. And because of a very traumatic childhood, she had always had a problem with alcohol. Uh, she couldn't stay sober for more than three months at a time. And one day, her and her husband and her two kids, they started going to a church. And by going to this church, she met Jesus. And she started to develop this deep, beautiful relationship with him. But not long after that, she had this huge relapse. Like, it was really bad. She ended up moving out of her family's house and living on the streets. Uh, she got divorced. She met a new guy. She started doing really hard drugs, contracted hepatitis, and she nearly overdosed a couple of times. But throughout that whole time, Jesus had never given up on her. God inspired her ex-husband to invite her and her new boyfriend to move into his basement so that they could detox in a safe place off of the streets. And once that initial detox was over, they moved into a recovery home. And while they were there, this woman had this incredible encounter with Jesus where Jesus made it so clear to her that he was not angry or disgusted with her. He was just grieved by watching her be in so much pain. And then he did something incredible. Miraculously, he healed her addiction. He healed her hepatitis. He even healed her boyfriend's addiction. And when the two of them left, out, left the recovery home sober, the boyfriend proposed to her. And who did she ask to give her away at the wedding? Her ex-husband. And in this incredibly beautiful act of forgiveness, that's exactly what he did. He gave his ex-wife away to be married. And these two, they got married. And 
Soon after they got married, she was really missing her kids. And so the ex-husband invited her and her new husband to move into his house again so that the three of them could raise their kids together. In the mornings, her ex-husband and new husband would study the Bible together. Ten, it's been 10 years since then, and they've moved out of her ex-husband's house. He's gotten remarried. They've been 10 years sober. Her new husband owns this business that hires addicts in recovery, and she's gotten her master's, and she's now a marriage and family counselor, helping people walk through incredibly difficult situations like she has. How many points in her story could we condemn her? Alcoholic bad mom, bad spouse, addict, failure. But at no point in her story did Jesus condemn her. Not when she couldn't stay sober, not when she left her church, not when she left her family, not when she started harder drugs, not when she nearly overdosed a couple of times because Jesus did not come here to condemn. He came to rescue. And so he showed her that she could go that she could sin no more. That's exactly what he did because he did not come to condemn. He came to rescue. When we condemn another person, it is hypocritical and it is compassionless. And on top of that, it doesn't help the person. In fact, it tells them that they are beyond help, which might make them not even want to seek help themselves. Now, the easy conclusion to come to from all this is that we shouldn't condemn other people. And that's true, but it's so much deeper than that because there's some beautiful, good news here. If we can recognize that condemning another person does nothing to help them, and if we can recognize that Jesus did not come to condemn and we are to follow his example, this doesn't just mean that we shouldn't condemn other people. It means that we have been set free from having to condemn other people. We don't have to do that anymore. Remember, condemnation tells someone that because of what they've done, that is now who they are. How many times has a person or a group of people been told by a church that because of who they are, they aren't welcome? That's not what Jesus came to do. How many times has a family cut off a member of their own family and told them because of who they are, they can't be a part of the family anymore? That's not what Jesus came to do. How much pain and heartbreak and division and separation has been communicated by a church or a Christian or a group of Christians because they felt like they were supposed to. That's not what Jesus came to do. We don't have to bring the people in our life in front of Jesus and ask if he accepts or rejects them. We already know the answer. Is there a person or a group of people that you have felt like you can't associate with because of who they are? You don't have to separate yourselves from them anymore. Is there a member of your family that has been cut off from their family because of who they are? You don't have to separate yourselves from them anymore. There are people who sadly believe that it is their personal mission to convince certain groups of people that because of who they are, they are unacceptable to God. What a sad, 
terrible, tragic, heavy burden that must be for those people to carry. If that's you, you don't have to do that anymore. It's not what Jesus came here to do. If you feel like it is your duty or your responsibility to convince someone that you know that because of who they are, they're unacceptable to God, you don't have to do that anymore. The good news here is that we have been set free from needing to condemn other people. But here's the thing. I have heard so many sermons on this passage, and I think every one of them was about how we treat other people. But the way that these religious leaders treated this poor woman, I can't imagine any single one of you doing the same thing to another person. Like, can you imagine that if we were in a church service and someone came up on stage and interrupted it and, and, and brought someone that they knew up on stage and publicly exposed the worst mistake that person had ever made and then make the suggestion that they should wait outside and on our way out the door, we should all take turns spitting on them. We would be disgusted by that. None of us would be okay with that. We would be appalled because that's not who we are. We wouldn't do something like that to another person. But here's the thing. We actually do do this because there is a person we know that we feel deserves it. And there is a person we know that we feel we have full permission to do this to. We do this to ourselves. All of us have made mistakes that we wish that we could take back. All of us have moments that we could do differently. All of us have things that we regret saying and doing. And maybe you have a really hard time forgiving yourself for that. When we replay those worst moments of our lives, those worst decisions we've ever made over and over in our head like a reoccurring nightmare, when we repeatedly beat ourselves up and accuse ourselves and criticize ourselves for making that mistake or those mistakes or that failure, we are reenacting this story. And we are playing both parts. We are both the victim and the accuser. When we do that to ourselves, it's like we're dragging ourselves out into the street and throwing us on the ground and putting ourselves on trial and condemning ourselves and accusing ourselves and telling ourselves, who does something like this? What have you become? Who lets something like this happen? Who are you anymore? You're garbage. You're a disappointment. You're a failure. You're a terrible person. You're a terrible spouse. You're a terrible parent. You are an awful human being. The more we do this to ourselves, the more condemned we feel. And the more we begin to believe that the things that we've done are an inseparable part of who we are, the more we begin to believe that we are beyond help. But let me ask you a question. When we do that to ourselves, what would happen if we invited Jesus into that moment. Based on this story and based on who he is, what would he do? Would he, would he join the condemning voices? That's not what he came here to do. He would work his way through the crowd until he was standing beside you and put his hand on your shoulder 
his very presence exposing how compassionless and hypocritical your own condemning voice is towards yourself. And when those voices die down and it's just you and him, what does he say? I don't condemn you. Go, be free, be free from this prison. Go, sin no more. And if you don't know how, I'll show you, ask me for help and I'll show you, I'll show you who you really are. What are you unable to forgive yourself for? What is it that you've done that you're dragging yourself into the street and putting yourself on trial for over and over and over? Jesus is showing us that you don't have to do that anymore. How are you condemning yourself? Jesus doesn't condemn you. So you don't have to do that either. Please stop condemning yourself. Allow Jesus to stand beside you. Open yourself up so you can hear him say, go and sin no more. And if you don't know how to do that, ask him how he'll show you. He'll show you who you really are. He'll show you who he made you to be. Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to set us free. Let's pray. In this prayer time, I want us to do this prayer exercise. Um, like we talked about, when we beat ourselves up for something over and over, we are reenacting this story. So I want you to imagine that you are the woman in this story. Picture it in your mind and you're surrounded by this crowd of condemning voices. What have you done? What is it that you have such a hard time forgiving yourself for? What is the reason why they have drug you out into the open like this? And what are the things that you say to yourself to criticize yourself, to accuse yourself? Whatever that is, I want you to imagine this crowd of people saying that to you in that setting. And now I want you to imagine that you look up and you see Jesus standing beside you. And that he looks down at you. What is the expression on his face when he looks at you? And again, we're in this posture of prayer. If you're having a hard time imagining these, these things or you don't know the answer to that question, ask him to show you. What is the look on Jesus' face when he looks at you in that moment? Okay, now imagine that he turns to the crowd of voices that are condemning you. What does he say to them? Now imagine that that crowd leaves and it's just you and Jesus standing there. What does he say to you?
we know from this story at the very least, he says, I don't condemn you. Go be free and sin no more. Okay, now I want us to picture the same thing, but this time roles are reversed. Now I want you to imagine that you are in the crowd of condemning voices, but in the center isn't the woman. I want you to imagine the person in your life that you've been really hard on lately, the person that you've been really critical of or judgmental towards, whether you believe you're in the right or wrong here. I want you to picture this person. Maybe you've been condemning them uh, in your mind, or maybe you're, you're, you're actually saying these things to them. But I want you to imagine that you're in the crowd and this person that you know is at the center. So I'll give you a moment to picture that. Now I want you to imagine that Jesus moves through the crowd and is standing beside that person that you know. And I want you to imagine that he looks through the crowd and he sees you. When he looks at you, what is the expression on his face? If the face you see doesn't have a layer of love to it, it's wrong. Even in the crowd, Jesus has such a heart of love towards you. What is the expression on his face? Okay, now imagine that the rest of the crowd leaves and it's just the three of you. It's Jesus standing with this person that you know and you standing across from them. And I want you to imagine that Jesus invites you to let go of the stone in your hand and walk over and stand beside that person as well. And if you feel like you're able to, I want you to imagine that you actually do that. If you felt like you were able to, how does it feel to stand next to that person and so close to Jesus with empty hands? Jesus, thank you for coming to rescue us. Thank you for not coming to condemn us. Thank you for coming to set us free. Would you help us to do the same to ourselves? Would you help us to treat ourselves with love and grace and dignity and compassion? And seeing the love and grace and dignity and compassion that you treat us with, would you help us to do the same to others? You did not come to condemn, so we don't have to either. Help us to embrace the freedom that you give us and join you in sharing that freedom with others as well. We love you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.
All right, everybody, it's time for us to, to talk and have a conversation about the sermon in the beginning of John chapter 8. Thank you for hanging around, for taking the time and the effort to be a part of something a little bigger. So, 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 so I just got to point out, just before this whole conversation happens, that the two of us have yep. a similar shirt on. <laughs> we did it again. Good job, guys. I, I like... should have said in the middle. And oh, yeah, yeah Break it but up. like beyond that, it's <laughs> the idea that the two of us have come to the age that the button-up shirt <laughs> thing and doing sermon thing. It's like ah, growing up. That's how I feel. I feel like the two of us are growing up. Good job. Well, if I wasn't here, I'd be in shorts and well, I am wearing my Birkenstocks. Yeah. That's so, great. but yeah, we we match a lot. Like. Too close. This is like the third time. Yeah, I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Every time it makes me uncomfortable. Okay, great. All right. Okay, anyway. Yeah. Oh, me. You go ahead, okay. Mariana. You can kick us off. Okay. Okay, so I have a question for you. The way that I was just taking in all the things you're saying, searching my heart and, and this whole thing of condemning ourselves, which I'm very good at. <laughs> Uh, and the voice, the things that we say to ourselves, ourselves that we don't say to other people, and reflecting on all of that, I think my and it's it's really a question. Help help me here, you guys. There are things that I understand that you do, and you regret, and you continue to carry that weight. And then there are certain things, and that's the the ones I wrestle with more that are more, you're who, really who you are, but like in a personality way, da, 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 but it kind of keeps getting you into trouble because truly who you are, and KJ probably can understand a bit more of what I'm saying because we've been wrestling with, uh, anyway, <laughs> point being. Ju- <laughs> the just, point is that she's going through something right now that she's and that trying we've been to talking about. Yeah, so it's a this very- is a- Personal story. It's a real story. I'm not making this up. I have a friend. The discernment. <laughs> I think Tell us about your friend. <laughs> the, yeah. My hypothetical yeah, friend. Right. No. I think there's an element of discerning, you know, the there's the the shame and the guilt and mm-hmm. discerning certain things about who you are, but how there's still hope in that even even though it's not a black and white like here's something wrong that I did Mm -hmm. I understand that that's disconnected from who I am but certain struggles that we have because it is Mm. because of how you're wired yeah does that make sense it does I think that's where it gets tricky for me because I I think your message is so inspiring and brilliant and hopeful but that's the tricky part that I'm wrestling with so, like, That's I talk a lot, and what do I do with that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, yes, I would. I get that. I think there's the element, though, from the biblical story here. It's talking about a sin, and then from, from a, a Torah perspective, it's a sin punishable by death. Uh, so it isn't talking about someone's like who uh-huh your trouble coming from your personality yeah it isn't like right. these things on the side of like uh-huh i i, I eat 
hamburgers all the time and I should probably cut back. It's, or I don't know. Like that's sure. It's it's talking about these these things that that are condemnable by death mm -hmm. from an Old Testament perspective, and the idea of condemning and condemning is is putting the hammer down on this yeah. person be, be, is supposed to not even be here anymore. Like, there's no value for you. Um, so probably I would say, like, go beyond that. Mm -hmm. I don't, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think because the analogy of the dumpster, for example, I think the times that I have experienced personally, like, I am trash and I belong in this dumpster. It's when it's all tied up together yeah, with that. things that, why do I circle back to these same difficulties or the yeah. same, you know, and that's when it's harder to discern. I'm not trash. I don't belong in the dumpster. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I, yeah. Yeah, that's tricky when it's so ingrained into who mm -hmm. you are. Yeah. I wonder if it's correct to say yeah. this is a part of my personality. Mm. I don't know. Uh, uh, explain that a bit more. I don't know. Well, it's hard when, when we're being so vague about what we're talking about here. Sure. I'm, <laughs> I'm not trying to draw you out more. No, no, no. Please don't do that. No, no, no. Um, I don't know. Like, <laughs> sometimes we, we say stuff like that, and that might be a form of condemnation in itself. Of like, oh, this is just who I am. Um, hmm. But... Or that maybe that's fun. just like a darker version of a part that is genuinely who you are and there's like a better form of it. Like mm -hmm. we've been in conversations where we talked about it's like there's parts of our personality and they have different roles and if like they are in this role but they weren't designed for that role and they're trying to do something else, like it just gets messy. But I don't know. I. I think a lot of where this came from is just like myself and others are just so hard on ourselves and we're trying to eliminate like any hint of imperfection so that it doesn't like show on us and we just beat ourselves up for it. Mm. And yeah, that's so hard and so heavy and I don't think that's the right way to go about it. I I really love that. I think that that's a that's a good answer for I will sit on that because maybe part of it is the grace that is lacking and where do we need to offer ourselves grace or to what standard are we holding ourselves to compared to even like what God right. you know what is God expecting of you and what you are expecting of yourself? I don't know. I think there's definitely God will give me grace a lot more. Uh, he gives a lot more grace than I give yeah. myself. So that, that I, I like that a lot. Thank you. All right. So kind of turning the corner yes. a bit here. Um, because it's something I'm excited about is just the whole gospel of John, I mm -hmm. guess, and mm -hmm. the authorship of John. Yeah. Um, from spending the time that you spent on the on. John 8, in that first chunk of, of John 8, tell me the thing that you believe, believe mm -hmm. uh, that is John's goal oh my in telling this story. <laughs> and it's coming from a 
I don't think he's talking to the individual about being condemned or to not be condemned. And in fact, he's he's telling something about the trajectory of Jesus somehow or uh-huh. something that hasn't been shared before. Uh-huh. Yeah. Man, that's a tricky question to answer. I know. And a part of the reason why it's tricky is because like if if you looked at this in your Bible, you'd see all these footnotes that talk about like in the earliest manuscripts that have been found of John, like this story is not in there. Um, so a lot of people believe that John wasn't even the one who wrote this story. Um, but it's been kept in there because of how consistent it is um, in the just like Jesus's heart and the way that he treats women and like all these different things. And like, so I tried to bring in other verses that like back up the things that are mm. in the story. So for my own sake of like, should I even say this if like there's even question of whether or not it's supposed to be in here. So something I was looking for is like from the series of like, I feel like I've started to get a good grasp of John's voice. And it doesn't sound like his voice. Right, exactly. It really, yeah, it's hard. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it really felt like I was stepping out of the John series and just like, okay, we're going to do due diligence to this passage, yep. and then we're going to continue yep. the John so series. So help me understand, what in this chapter doesn't sound like John? Just just help us understand. What can you point out like this this that doesn't belong with everything else. I don't know. Like if you heard like a kid's voice in a crowd and someone asked you, what does not sound like your kid's voice and that kid's sure. voice? You'd be like, uh. I'm not saying I know John to the degree that I know my child's voice. Uh-huh. <laughs> but like, I don't know. It's. I was just curious. So I, maybe I think part more. of it is like sort of what you're talking about is like John feels so interconnected and it feels like there is this fluidity of thought and there's this underlying thing that is like being taught and this feels like um, an anecdotal story that sits a bit outside of it. Hmm. I don't know. I could be wrong, but that's just kind of how it feels. I always have a really hard time because I'm like programmed to only talk about things that I understand. Mm -hmm. So if I can't say it and be certain. Mm -hmm. And so John chapter eight is very hard for me because I'm like, Mm -hmm. you know, like um, I I, I don't have a good answer. Mm -hmm. And... um, and it, it it's possible it is by the pen of John. It's possible it's not. The odds are, and and then the 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 gospel became a part of the Christian canon mm-hmm. far past the authorship time yep. period. So yep. who who actually really cares? Um, so it's just it. But there is this vibrancy, and there are the under. Currents um, throughout the Book of John that 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 in the early part of John chapter eight it's there's a void of that mm-hmm. and, and it's hard to explain yeah 
I think for me, another piece too is the whole writing on the ground thing. Like normally when John says something like really cryptic or mysterious, there's it's something. Obvious. Yeah, there's, it's obvious. And if it's not yeah. obvious, it's just under the surface. Yeah. But people have been just mystified by this forever. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. Nobody's yeah. figured it out. Right. I thought for a moment that I came close, and I shared this with yeah. you. There's, there's this passage in the book of Numbers where there is like this ceremony where, like, this sounds so barbaric, but if there is a husband who believes that his wife has been cheating on him, like adulteress, but she's not owning up to it, mm-hmm. he can bring her to the temple, and the priest will make this drink and one of the parts like one of the instructions to make this drink is to scoop dust off of the temple floor Mm. and then mix it into this water and if she drinks it and she's guilty she gets incredibly sick but if she's innocent she doesn't get sick Mm -hmm. but it's believed that if the husband is also secretly guilty of adultery even if she is if she drinks it, she won't die. Like, uh-huh. she'll be okay. And so I was like, huh, okay, here's another priest, like, scooping dust off of uh-huh. the ground. Here's a woman being accused of adultery, but because everyone in the accusers are guilty, like, she's guilty, she goes free. But that's a stretch. Like, that's sure. a huge stretch. Uh-huh. So I'm, I don't know. For a while, like halfway through, I was like, oh, I found it, I found it. And then I was like, no, no, this, yeah, it'd be this hard feels too to, different. It, mm-hmm. But like there are the general themes though of, so if they if the accuser does not have sin. Uh-huh, yep, she's toast. Yeah, yeah. and like so he kind of brings that up, that same vocabulary. Mm-hmm. If, yep. if you do not have sin, heave the stones. Yeah. Um, and so that's so, what I was yeah. thinking, like yeah. the caliber of like knowledge of the people bringing this woman. Like yeah. I wondered, it's like if they see Jesus on the ground, they'll immediately go to like the ceremony and numbers and be like, "Oh, this feels familiar. I better get out of here." I don't know, but mm-hmm. I think it's a stretch. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a hard one. Yep. Yeah. Well, I do appreciate this. Uh, message of of hope and that's where i'm sitting right now is just in the hope and in the giving of grace Mm. to to others and to myself so thank you for that you're welcome that was great man all right all right it's time for us to go thanks for hanging out and that's it have a great day